The Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. Hey everyone, this is Swami for the Core EM Podcast, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency. Thanks for joining us for our first podcast for this project. Now, as discussed last week on the intro, what we're planning to do is really to bring you a short podcast highlighting pearls, pitfalls, and some critical take-home messages from our weekly resident conference. From time to time, we'll also throw in a longer edition with a full-length recorded lecture from some of either our core content or our Grand Round series. For this episode, we're going to highlight our Wilderness Medicine Conference that was held on May 6, 2015. We had the pleasure of getting Chris McStay and Jay Lemery, two Wilderness Medicine gurus out of Denver Health, to come down to New York City for Grand Rounds. In addition, Hong Chong, one of our own faculty members, gave a great talk about his work with the Himalayan Rescue Association. It was really great stuff for residents. We're going to try and put up Jay Lemery's talk on wilderness medicine, what it means in 2015, and why it's an essential part of emergency medicine. We'll try and put that up next week as long as the recording came out well. As far as core content for this conference, the real money was with Chris McStay's lecture on lightning and electrical injuries. It's really a perfect topic to go with our Thunderstruck theme music. Chris started this talk off right off the bat with some great dogma lysis. He went through five points that we often talk about for electrical and lightning injuries that aren't actually true. So here are those five points. Number one, delayed dysrhythmias are common. They are not. Number two, voltage determines the injury. It's just not quite that simple. Number three, everyone needs an EKG in labs. Number four, CK and troponin are good markers in electrical injury. And number five, all patients require 24 hours of cardiac monitoring. Now we're going to come back to those throughout our pearls and pitfalls about why those things aren't true. So let's get into the core content here. Chris discussed some interesting epidemiology that while not testable or necessarily useful in the clinical setting is kind of interesting. There's about a thousand electrical injury deaths every year, but lightning deaths are a little rarer, usually only about 40 per year in the United States. Now, there's some odds that are also kind of interesting. So you have a 1 in 400,000 chance of being struck by lightning every year, but a 1 in 5,000 lifetime risk of being struck by lightning. And I have to say that's a lot higher than I expected. So I want to go over a couple of tips that Chris gave about avoiding lightning injuries if we're outside before we get into some of the other pearls and pitfalls. So number one, if you're doing outdoor stuff, watch the weather report. Chris had a nice little tip. When thunder roars, stay indoors. It's just not worth it. Number two, if lightning does start and you're already outside, avoid things like trees and picnic shelters. Much more likely to get hit there. You're better wet and alive than dry and dead. Are you in a group when the lightning starts? Well, you want to give about 100 feet in between people. That's going to reduce the splashover from lightning injuries as well as the number of people who are going to get injured. And number four, you want to minimize your ground contact and height. So there's this position you can kind of ball yourself up into on the balls of your, of your feet and bring your height down real low to the ground. That's going to reduce the chance that you get struck. Now, when we're evaluating patients with electrical and lightning injuries, it's important to know some of the differences between those two. So lightning is obviously a higher energy level, but a much shorter duration of injury. The more prolonged exposure to electrical injuries can cause deeper injuries. So you have to look for those deep tissue injuries. 
V-fib is much more common in electrical injuries, whereas you'll usually see asystole with lightning strikes. And then lastly, renal injuries and compartment syndrome are rarely seen in lightning injuries, but fairly common with the electrical ones. Now, when we're talking about significant electrical injuries, and I think this goes along with lightning injuries as well, we have to look for multi-system injuries. So this is basically like a trauma patient. You almost want to start using your ATLS on these patients. Falls are pretty common. So you get struck by lightning or you get struck by an electrical jolt and you get thrown. So we want to look for associated fractures and don't forget to protect the C-spine. Let's go a little bit into some specific organ systems. So Chris started with cardiac. Direct myocardial injury is often seen, but acute ischemic myocardial injury is rare. This is why we're not really sure what the significance of troponin and CK bumps are. So troponin can't be used as a prognostic factor, just it just hasn't been studied that well in electrical or lightning injuries to know what to do with it. In addition to that, echo and ECG correlates pretty poorly with injury. Dysrhythmias can be seen at any voltage. Low voltages are more likely to cause V-fib, with higher voltages like a lightning strike more likely to cause asystole. How about the nervous system? Well, loss of consciousness is typically seen with both lightning and electrical injuries. With lightning injuries, though, you can often get a centrally mediated apnea because often patients will get struck in the head. In addition to that, you can see this thing called coronoparalysis, not something I was very familiar with, but that's basically a lightning-associated transient paralysis of the lower extremities. In patients who survive the initial lightning strike, that paralysis will usually also resolve. How about skin? You know, skin is the main resistor in the body, and so electricity is going to cause some pretty extensive damages to this organ system, especially if there's prolonged injury. These patients will get pretty significant burns. We should treat them as burn patients. We're not going to go into that here, but there was a great podcast back in April from the Foamcast team, Lauren Westifer and Jeremy Faust, talking about burn management. One thing about burn management that doesn't apply to these patients are things like the Parkland formula. They weren't really created for these kind of injuries. I think it's better to titrate fluids to urine output instead. In electrical injuries, again, remember that compartment syndrome is common, so we don't want to just look at the skin, we need to look at the deeper tissues as well. We should be pretty aggressive about fasciotomies and escherotomies in the appropriate patients. With musculoskeletal injuries, already we touched on compartment syndrome, but there's a lot of heat that's generated when the electricity goes through the bone, and so we have to look for damage to the surrounding muscle, mostly rhabdomyolysis. That's why we're going to want to check a UA on these patients looking for the presence of heme-positive dip, but then no RBCs on microscopy. We also want to look again for that resultant trauma where there are long bone fractures. And again, don't forget about protecting the C-spine. Now, some tips with pre-hospital care. So if you arrive on the scene, somebody who had an electrical injury, you're going to be really careful that the area is safe before plunging in. This is less likely to be relevant in lightning strikes, but especially with things like blown transformers, there can still be some hot electricity coming off of that. So you need to be really careful when you're going in to rescue people. One of the special populations Chris touched on that I think is important is pregnant patients. Stillbirths are pretty common, even with low voltage. And with lightning strikes, fetal mortality approaches 50%, so pretty big. If a patient comes in first trimester of pregnancy after an electrical injury or a lightning strike, you definitely want to confirm fetal heart tone on ultrasound and give the patient spontaneous abortion precautions. Again, these are really likely to happen. In the second and third trimester, you always need to consult OB for fetal monitoring. These patients are also at a significant risk for placental abruption. The last thing Chris touched on is a little bit of a debatable topic, definitely contentious, and that's disposition of patients with electrical or lightning injuries. If they're a low-voltage injury and the patient's asymptomatic with a normal exam, there's no need for any labs, any monitoring, or an EKG. 
these guys can just be discharged home. If it's a low-voltage injury with mild symptoms, these patients can be briefly monitored and discharged home if the EKG and the UA are normal. Again, remember, with a UA, we're looking for rhabdo. So we're going to be looking for the presence of heme-positive urine, but no RBCs when they do the microscopy. Lastly are the high-risk injuries. And one of the things that Chris really wanted to nail home here is that the voltage delivered was over 1,000 volts. All of those patients should be admitted for monitoring. That 1,000 volt threshold is sort of the cutoff between low and high voltage injuries. So 1,000 volts, bring them all in. Chris brought up a couple of articles that help with this too. There's an article in 2007 in Emergency Medicine Journal that looked at some risk factors. If the patient had a transthoracic current, they experienced tetany, loss of consciousness, or they had a voltage over 1,000 volts, they probably need to be brought in. Now, if they didn't have any of those things and the EKG was normal, they probably could go home without monitoring. There's another article a couple years before that, Annals of Emergency Medicine 1995 by Bailey et al. had about 100 patients and they showed no evidence for delayed dysrhythmias. So they don't have it on presentation, they're probably not going to get one. This is kind of the best evidence we have. Finally, with lightning injuries and disposition, if the patient's asymptomatic with a normal exam, they can go home if their EKG and UA are negative. However, about 74% of patients who have a lightning strike are going to have long-term disabilities. So even if they look fine in front of you, they need to have close follow-up. One key thing is follow-up with ophthalmology because a lot of these patients will get lightning strike-associated cataracts, something to watch out for. All right, let's sum this all up here. Number one, if the electrical injury was over 1,000 volts, those patients are all coming in regardless of what you find. We have to be really cautious about checking EKGs for dysrhythmias and checking urinalysis to scream for rhabdomyolysis. Make sure to get good follow-up on all of these patients. But one of the key things again here is that some of these people can go home from the emergency room with minimal or no testing. It really depends on the voltage being low versus high, if they're asymptomatic and they have a normal exam. All right, so that's all for the Core EM podcast this month. Some great tips on electrical injury. Again, later this month, we're going to bring you that full-length lecture from Jay Lemry on wilderness medicine and why it's important to emergency medicine physicians. Thanks for listening, and keep tuned. And remember, the Core EM project is core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time.